Welcome to another episode of the Colorado Bow Hunters Association podcast. I am out in the wilderness, well, just adjacent to the wilderness. I'm with the uh, Flat Top Wilderness Guides. I'm here with Jimmy Oswald and Evan Coster. They uh, invited me out to the property here to talk about their operation, their outfit, what we got going on, and answer some of my curiosities about the outfitting world. Guys, I really appreciate you having me. Jimmy, Evan, it's nice to talk to you guys. Gave me a tour on the property today, talked about your operation. I am very excited to have this conversation, so thank you for having me out here and making some time today. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Of course. Uh, do you guys want to just introduce your names, kind of brief history? Hey, I'm so-and-so, this is where I'm from, this is what I do, and uh, and then people get used to your voice a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So I'm Jimmy Oswald. Uh, I'm the manager of LKS Outfitters. Um been working out here in Colorado since 2016 uh, for the previous owner. Uh, the new owners um, kept me on. Um, originally from Pennsylvania, spent about half the year out here, the other half in Loveland, Colorado. Nice, man. Awesome. Yeah, Evan Coster. Um, I grew up here locally on Sweetwater Creek. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I've been working for Flat Tops Wilderness Guides since 2015. Um, and my current role is as head guide. Um, looking forward to uh, the new ownership here and continuing a, an, an awesome hunt. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you guys uh, giving me some of your time. I'm very curious as to how each of you found this outfit in the first place in 2015, 2016. How did you come into the world of outfitting and guiding? As uh, I was telling you guys off mic, I'm from Long Island. I was a New York City boy. Now I'm in Denver working in construction in that commercial environment. And like, I'm astounded by people who make this choice, who live this life, who guys who are maybe once in a lifetime coming out here to hunt with you or every five years, me and the buddy save up enough money. This is your every day. And I'm so like in shock by people who make that choice. So I'm curious if each of you could tell me like, how did you get into this and how did it you know, pan out compared to what you thought it would be and what is it in reality? Uh, Jimmy, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I said, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, I had no idea you could make a, a living in the hunting industry. I thought you had to be on a TV show or something like that. So, I went to Penn State, got a degree in wildlife and fishery science, um, then went and started working on some ranches in, in Texas. Uh, and that's when I kind of realized that, uh, um, you know, you, you, you can make a living in the hunting industry. Growing up hunting, uh, loved it. When I was working in Texas, I knew I liked the West, uh, wanted to come out, um, called a bunch of outfitters, uh, got in contact with a, uh, teacher at CSU who was, uh, packing like the mule and horse packing. Uh, and he gave me some numbers. I called Cliff, the previous owner. Uh, and he was like, yeah, come on out. Uh, and, and, an intern. Um, and sure enough, been here ever since. That's awesome. Yeah. It's always so interesting seeing how you go from, I want to do this to managing the outfit. Uh, a lot of guys I recognize sometimes myself included, you don't want to put in the work. You just want the results. Right. Uh, however, if someone were to tap me on the shoulder and hand me a six by six elk and you know, 400, 300 pounds of meat, I wouldn't feel as good as pulling one out of the woods myself. So there is this level of putting in the hard work and working your way up through an internship all the way to this is what you do day in and day out is like a pretty amazing trajectory, but it also was, what are we, six, eight years in for you? Yeah. 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 So it's a long time. How about you? How did you fall into this? Uh, so I started out working for an outfitter on the north side of the flat tops out of Meeker. Um, he was a, uh, 
he was a neighbor rancher. I'd done some ranch work for him. Uh, obviously, I have a history with horses. Grew up with horses. Um, and uh, he said, come work. Uh, I knew immediately, like my very first week of my first season outfitting, like this is this is me, right? Yeah. Uh, just uh, every every aspect of it from wildlife to horses to the wild places we get to visit uh, and, and dealing with people. I loved it all and knew I wanted to do it forever. Um, so I worked up there for two years and uh, I kind of was looking into buying my own outfit. Um, and I heard that Cliff just up the road here had bought this and I wanted to pick his brain about it. So we sat down. Uh, I wanted to see how his experience went. I knew he's an, an intelligent guy um, and uh, just wanted to network. And he said, eh, come work for me, man. So <laughs> I, I came over here, which uh, which is awesome. I'm, I'm literally getting to guide. I, I call it my mountain, right? My, my kids. Yeah, you share it with me now, though. <laughs> Um, I grew up in the shadow of this thing and uh, now getting paid to, uh, to to share it with other people is it's a dream come true. That is so cool. And it's something that I think about in terms of any pursuit where you have something you love and you turn it into your profession. There's this balance between um, sharing it because you love it and keeping your enthusiasm for it and potentially ruining this thing you love, one, by the amount of exposure you have to it, and two, by the uh, experiences that being a businessman in there versus... So for me, the idea of like getting to go hunt one, two, three weeks a year is amazing. Being an outfitter, you might not even get to go hunt one, two, three weeks a year. You're hunting, you're with people, you're also making sandwiches and cleaning horses and cleaning boots and doing all this stuff. And I really like respect that about the guide life. I was telling you guys that I do some spearfishing and we'll meet the guy at the dock We'll go out for six, seven, eight, nine hours, diving all day, absolutely exhausted, get home, and then we go out to dinner. He was there before us getting the boat prepped. He was there after us cleaning our fish. And obviously, that's part of what you're paying for. But just that idea of like, your guiding is two, three, four hours on either side of the hunter's experience. Uh, so I really respect you for it. I'm curious if it still feels like it did in the early days in terms of how you're interacting with people, how you're being in the wilderness, the amount of knowledge you have of the country behind us. Uh, is it, has it grown into something more amazing? Is it changed over the years as your experience has uh, evolved and your responsibilities here have evolved? I'm curious what your relationship to Man, it has been. For, for sure. Um, growth, right? Yeah. I'm a better hunter. I'm a better guide. Uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, I enjoy the experience more than I did when I was bumbling around. Try, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, tr trying to trying to learn as I went. Um, I mean, you've heard it in talking to other guys. Time, time is what makes you a great hunter, right? Mm -hmm. Time in the woods, time in the saddle, um, time behind a spotting scope, and uh, familiarity with the place too. Familiarity with the place, and and um, you. You gain confidence, right? The, the, the more knowledge you get, the more experience you get, uh, confidence comes with it. And uh, it makes everything easier. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk about hunting like uh, going on a date. Like if you're going out, on a, I'm single, I'm living in a big city. If you're going out on a date and you're like looking at yourself in the mirror beforehand, you're like, I look fucking good. You're ready to go out and be <laughs> yeah. impressive. It's the same thing for me, like with a bow. If I'm shooting lights out, changing my pins and, and, and hitting various distances, as well as like feeling dialed with my gear, feeling dialed with my wind and everything. It's like, all right, something's going down yeah. versus like, ah, oh, shit, I'm not certain about this broadhead. I just made too many changes too late in the season. It kind of, 
expands from there as to like I've been on this mountain ten times, ten years, twenty million times, whatever yeah. it is. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so how big is your guys' outfit? I know that you mentioned that it might be uh, growing a little bit, but in terms of like how many guides, how many hunters, how long are your seasons? All this. Give me a yeah. So. We- we start our kind of our official season kind of the end of May. We start doing day rides, um, fishing trips into the wilderness. Uh, and then September one, it's 100% hunting. So we're, you know, the season starts September 2nd, September one, we're taking that first group of drop camp guys up the mountain. Our guided guys might be going up the, the, the mountain as well. And then we're running all the way through fourth rifle season, which is um, you know a little bit after Thanksgiving. Yeah, man, that is a long time to be running an operation. I mean, I've noticed myself shifting from winter mode, I like to snowboard a lot, to hunting, scouting, adventure mode. And it happens quick out here, especially, you know, the resorts just closed June 4th or June 5th. So, like, there's a long season. And then for you guys, you have this window of opportunity between when the snow melts and when the hunters and the and the explorers start coming of getting your horses ready getting your food ready getting your bunks ready all the stuff out here because uh, i'm certain during the season the logistics are much harder to manage than if you prepped your preseason up throw okay we're gonna like i'm curious how it works do you need to restock every couple of weeks or how do you guys plan to host uh what is it eight weeks of hunters uh throughout the season yeah so we starting in in july we start pulling all of our camp gear right so everything you know there's going to be eight guys in this drop camp might be the max so we're going and cleaning eight forks eight spoons eight knives stacking all that stuff up then um august 15th is when we can start setting our camps so august 15th to september 1 we need to go and set all of our camps um we have 17 different camp locations we obviously don't don't use all of them every year and we kind of rotate through them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot of work to get done in, in, in two weeks. We might be setting, um, those, those seven or eight camps in, you know, every other day we're going up the mountain the next day. Uh, we just had the tent the very next day. We're getting all that other gear ready to go right back up there. So you'll, do day trips in terms of setting up these camps. You'll put all the gear on the horses, tools, go out, set up one, come back, reset, do it again. Correct. Man, that is a lot of effort. Uh, I'm jumping my own gun a little bit, but because you mentioned, I'm curious, you said you have 17 potential camp locations and that's uh, on your permit from the forest service. That's like, Hey, you're designated to be in this parcel of land or whatever. Yeah. So, so we're permitted in, uh, in a large part of the forest, the, um, specifically the flat tops wilderness, and then more specifically the white river side of, um, the flat tops. Um, and then, um, the, our camp locations are, are designated by the forest. So they give us a five acre parcel, uh, and we have to set our camps inside of that. That doesn't mean, um, you know, you, if you wanted to hike 10 miles in there, you could literally set up a camp right next to ours. We just can't move our camp away from you. I got you. And I'm assuming you have different, uh, permissions than, uh, non outfitter, meaning I can't go leave a drop camp in national forest, uh, unless it's attended, I believe. Yeah. So the, the forest won't let, um, Joe public set up a camp for more than 14 days. 
four, you have 14 days and then you have to move it at least one mile. The permits allow us to keep them in there from August 15th through the hunting season. I gotcha. So do your like uh, wall tents generally stay up that long and then you're just going in and replenishing supplies and clean? clean. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if it, if it snows six, eight inches, it's a major pain in the butt because we got to go up and get the snow off the tents. Wow. Um, so with that, is there, um, camp locations that you guys either one prefer that some of your hunters prefer or that you guys do a little preseason scouting and saying, Hey, the, there's been this much rain and this much cold or the elk or the deer or whatever are migrating at a different pace than they used to. So I'm curious if you have either preferences or, Hey, we hunted with you guys last year. Can we stay at that exact same drop camp? I'm curious how that those selections work. There's, that's one of the beautiful thing about having 17 camps is they all kind of have their nuances. Sure. And we try to pair hunters with the camp that's going to suit them best, right? So a guy that's mule deer focused on a fourth rifle hunt, we're going to put him in the oak brush and aspens, right? Yeah. Um, a guy that's elk focused during archery and is active and young, we're going to put him in one of our higher steeper camps. Um, so they like, they, they kind of all have, they all have their pros and cons mm-hmm. and, uh, and we just try to fit hunters with a location that's going to suit their, their needs. You that's know? awesome. Yeah. And it's really cool to be able to have that much of a nuanced understanding. Like for me, I'll open up on X and I'll look at flat top wilderness and it is just a giant chunk of land. Whereas to you, this drainage in this section means one thing, this drainage in this section means another thing. And again, like uh, being a novice hunter, I'm kind of, I would say winging it, winging it with an educated guess because I took Corey Jacobson's Elk 101 or whatever it is, right. the, the, the information I've been exposed to. Um, so with that, like you're saying, the hunter's level of fitness uh, plays a role in your selections. I'm curious, like, is there an expectation when guys are coming to hunt for you? Let's put it in archery terms of, hey, I'm dropping you at this drop camp, but you're still hiking 10 miles a day, five miles a day, one mile a day. How close to either the action or how far from the action do these guys typically either expect to be or do you like prepare them? Hey, I need you to come in here with a level of fitness and readiness because just because you got in there on horseback doesn't mean you don't have work to do once you get there. Yeah, I, I think that on our drop camp, guys, there's um, kind of a misconception that we we rode in 10 miles um and and some guys might think that you know you're going to open up the wall tent doors and there's going to be bulls bugling right outside the tent yeah. it it happens um like for instance one time we packed uh, a crew out of um they were from Pennsylvania they wanted to come out early cuz they couldn't sleep the elk were keeping them up all night right which is like probably the best problem to have but then then there's the flip side uh, you know, cause our camps are designated spots. Um, we can't just go put them anywhere. You might have to go and, and hike your butt off to, to get to elk. Uh, and I, I always tell the drop camp guys, if they're depend on what they want out of the hunt, like a lot of guys just want the camaraderie, that camp life and killing an elk is secondary. That's, that's awesome. Um, but if the guys are like focused on, like they have one goal in mind and that's it is to kill an elk. You should probably bring some spiking out gear, a small backpacking tent, some mountain houses. Um, and then if you, if you're having trouble finding out close to camp and you see some elk five miles away, well, just go grab your backpacking stuff. Uh, go camp closer to those elk for a day. 
that. I appreciate you saying that and hearing that as well as I'm sure it's eye-opening for some of your clients and duh, makes sense for some of your other clients. What I've noticed where I've hunted, I've been hunting the same spot, this will be year three, and you know, the first year I put one stalk on one elk and didn't see him when I got there, I just smelled him. Second year, opening day, I had 20 encounters, full draw twice, second day I had a six by six elk come in there. So now, coming up on year three, I was like, all right, we're gonna figure this out. But what I've learned is because uh, guys can get back into this place on ATV, it's BLM land, they're staying close to their ATV. And it's not a huge parcel. It might be a two, three mile hike to get to the middle of the middle of this place, which is doable for a lot of people. And guys don't want to do it. They'll go down the drainage that their ATV goes up and they'll come back up to the ATV. They will not come up and over a ridgeline. And so it's just those tiny bits of separation you can make. Ah, I don't want to climb up and over that. Well, that's what everybody thinks. So go climb up over, up and over that and it might be successful. Um, is there when a new client comes on and says, Hey, I want to spend hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars with you guys to come do this hunt. I've always dreamed of hunting out there. Is there a level of reality that you give them in terms of, Hey, you should be running this much or lifting this much or get comfortable with these things, especially guys not coming from Oh, sorry about that. Uh, guys coming, even for me, coming from Denver out here, I'm up to 3,000 feet. And if I were to go back in the backcountry, we're up another two, three, four thousand feet. So I'm really curious how you guys prepare hunters to be successful, especially when guys are spending a lot of money. There's a, sometimes an expectation of success or experience that I'm curious how you guys manage that. Yeah. I mean, managing expect from a guide's perspective, Yeah, <clears throat> managing expectations is like kind of a game, right? Um, if I guided Jimmy every time I took a client, we would kill an elk every single time, right? right. Be- because he has he has that that mental toughness, uh, the physical fitness. Uh, he has his gear dialed. He's a competent shooter. He he's done the legwork, right? Um, and we're we're brutally honest with hunters on the phone about that. Like, um, look, yeah, you're hiring a guide, but uh, you got to do your part too. Um, and it, it's, it's those things for sure. It's, it's physical fitness, mental toughness, uh, and, and competence with, with your gear, you know? Um, and, and we try to set the stage when we're booking hunters, like, Hey, today, right now, you've just booked this hunt right now is when you need to start preparing for it. Um, and the guys who have, when they get here, it's obvious, right? Uh, it feels like I'm guiding Jimmy. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it, I'm certain it makes a difference, and I'm certain it's a reality check for other guys. I mean, there's some people I follow in, that are social media hunter types, and uh, one of them came out to Colorado from Pennsylvania and got hit with altitude sickness right away. And like, physically fit guy, where he's at and what he does, and some of those things are out of your control or just have to do with your own physiology. But... I was really impressed with how he turned it inwards and said, all right, this is kind of on me for how I trained and what my expectations were, how hard I pushed myself the second I got out here. Um, and then he spent a couple of days recovering and then hunted a lower elevation, uh, uh, you know, piece of land, didn't get any elk, but still got after it. And so it's interesting how some people will, pay and say, guide my hand, pull the trigger for me. I want the elk. It's like, Hey man, there's a few private ranches out here where you can literally pay for the class of animal you're looking to get and they'll guarantee an opportunity. That might be a better fit for someone who's kind of looking for the, let me not put in all the work. Uh, but I guess guys who are coming on a wilderness hunt, 
with that idea. So I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast won't know this, but I'll put it out there for the uh, uninitiated is wilderness is a national forest designation. And what that means is that it's been untouched and it will not be, be developed as well as no mechanized equipment can get back there. So you can get back there on foot, you can get back there on horseback or other stock, uh, livestock animals. Um, so you would think that some guys coming into a wilderness hunt have a certain level of knowledge of the location that they're entering. Um, and you would hope that would kind of be that first barrier of weeding people out. Um, so with that, I'm curious if you guys personally have hunts that you prefer, one, to take for yourself, but two, in terms of a guiding stance. Do you like hunt, uh, guiding sheep? Do you like guiding mule deer? Do you like, is there a preference uh, on either side? And I'm assuming you used to guide and now manage? Or? Yeah, I, I, still, I still do quite a bit of the guiding, yeah. So I'm curious how each of you feel about what do you like to hunt, what do you like to guide, and if there's a why behind that. Yeah, the, the elk hunts, they're the, they're the definitely the most difficult. Um, an over-the-counter uh, elk hunt is hands down the hardest hunt there is um, because game densities, um, hunter density, they're crazy, crazy smart. Um, they get run around from the time they're born to the time they they die. They're, they're constantly harassed, whether it's from hunters or by predators. Um, but then... So they're, they're the most rewarding. Um, and then I like to throw myself a bone and do a sheep or a goat hunt. Yeah. Those tend to be a lot higher success hunts. Uh, they're also kind of that, that sexy, that sexy hunt that everyone wants to go and do. But like, honestly, hunting a mountain goat, it's really not that difficult. Yeah. Getting up the mountain is, is tough, but, um, yeah, it's like, if you see him there, yeah, you can, you can walk up on him If you see him there five days ago they're probably going to be in that same general spot yeah yeah fascinating how about you yeah yeah for sure elk for the same reason um that the challenge of it uh it's an adventure every single time i've never had a guy walk up to an elk and be like man that was easy <laughs> you, you know what i mean <laughs> um and and from the from a guiding perspective it's uh it's really neat watching guys uh, who may be from an urban environment, uh, maybe inexperienced hunters, whatever, put push themselves to the brink of what they're capable of doing and then succeeding at it. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like elk, over-the-counter elk in a wilderness unit um, is that experience. Like, it's to the brink every time, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's so fulfilling for me to, to watch guys uh, slay their dragon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and in my personal hunting, it, it's, it's, it's elk deep. Yeah. Um, with a bow? With a, with, with a bow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're, yeah, as you know, and I'm sure other people have spoken about in the past, they're like, uh, they're made for archers. You know what I mean? <laughs> they stick to heavy cover. They scream. Um, they pee all over themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, they just beg to be hunted with a bow. And, uh, and there's nothing I enjoy more than, That's awesome. than September in the Elkwoods. So being that this is the uh, CBA podcast, I'm curious if you guys have any uh, elk archery elk specific uh advice whether it's something you'd you know we're talking we're sitting in the uh, office that you guys sit down with your hunters and if i was coming in september 2nd or maybe a couple days before what would you guys say to me in terms of expectation in terms of thought process say i've never gone on an elk hunt before either um in terms of 
um, worrying about the wind, calling, getting in close. I'm curious just the general uh, gist you would you would give somebody, or is there is it tailored to each individual? I, I think something a lot of people get wrong off the bat, and yeah. it's so simple. This isn't like a, a mind-blowing piece of advice, but, but find the elk first, right? Um, and whether you're doing that uh, through a spotting scope from the side of the road, mm-hmm. fine. Um, find the elk first and then get in there, then get in there and hunt. Yeah. If, if you just kind of pick the drainage and you're going to hike 10 miles and bugle every day, uh, you may or may not come into elk. But if, if you know before you ever pull your bow from the case that you're going to be hunting, actively hunting a group of elk that day, you've set yourself up for success. Um, and uh, I, I know that's kind of ambiguous, yeah. but it, it seems like there's a lot of guys at the trailheads that are going out there to look for elk. Hoping. Um, hoping. Yeah. Uh, you need to do your homework ahead of time yeah. so that when, when you click your release onto that bowstring, you're already where the elk are. You know what I mean? Sure. Do um, you guys ever come out and scout like th- with through you guys or with you guys um, in the summer months? Or? Uh, so we ha- we'll sometimes have some guys come out. Um, they're vacationing out here and they're doing a hunt with us. They stop in. We'll go fishing. Um, you know the scouting the scouting part for elk. The elk are where they are at on that day. Uh, you, like we could go up and I could show you a hundred elk today, but I promise you come september 15th they probably won't be elk in that same spot yeah and for you and for this location is that an elevation uh band usually in terms of your time of year uh factoring in some other weather factors and things like that yeah yeah yes and no i mean um you look at the top of the 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 mountain over there on the map um and in the summer it's not that uncommon to glass up 200 had elk up up on on the top uh on yeah on the wide open um yeah laying in the snow whatever um but as soon as the first person rides across there starts bumping them they they start dispersing and and i think there's a big misconception on um like if you read a a a book about elk hunting if you're gonna hunt your your september elk uh at timberline right that I think that's a big fallacy. Like there, there's elk spread out through the landscape from 7,000 feet in pinion junipers all the way to the top um, above above timberline. They're going to be in aspens. Um, so they're, they're all over the place. It depends also if you're hunting on the Continental Divide versus if you're hunting out in, uh, you know, close to Meeker or near Grand Junction or whatever. It's like tallest mountain out here is 8,500 feet. You can't, right, can't right. get higher than that. Yeah. They're gonna kind of correspond. Yeah, elk kind of are where they're where they are, and there's way more. Again, looking at that map, that's all. That's all juicy elk habitat. Yeah. Um, there's way more habitat than there are animals, right? Um, so, um, you you need to. That goes back to what I was saying about sure. you, you. You just need to figure out where they are and hunt them there. And and as Jamie pointed out, it's where they are during your hunt. Yeah. Right? Like I always tell hunters, like when we're doing a briefing in here. You could blindly throw a dart at that map, and I bet within 15 feet of where that dart lands, you will find some kind of elk sign. Yeah, fascinating. And that, that's one of the hard things about the flat tops, in my opinion, is it's all great elk country. Like, you can go to some of the more rugged um, 
mountain ranges and you can rule out like a good section of the mountain and be like, there's not going to be elk up there. Right. Um, in the flat tops. Yeah. It's, they, they could be anywhere. That's one thing I've noticed in my hunting generally solo, um, always public land for now until I get more money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is when you go hunt flat tops, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of acres. If you're going to hunt some parcel of BLM that's 5,000, 10,000 acres, you can look at the whole unit. You can talk and walk to every perimeter, every property line, and there's a double-edged sword of, man, it is frustrating that I can't go over that next ridge line, but it's also like you got to go where you're allowed to go and play the, play the game that you're playing. And there's strategy there is what are the hunters doing, what are the elk going to be doing, and what am I allowed to do? Uh, And so I almost find that sometimes choosing a smaller parcel of land can be less intimidating because it's like, all right, I will see what this whole thing looks like. The elk may move out of here into a place I am not allowed to access. That's where it gets a little frustrating. But having a place like this, I could totally see how having some either a guide or just a little bit of that knowledge before you go into a drop camp can be tremendously helpful. You know, spend a few thousand dollars to spend five days looking for elk versus spend one day looking for elk and four days in it. So then do you tell your hunters, like let's stick with that archery example, go keep your bow with you, but go spend a day finding elk before you just go spend a day bugling for elk in the valleys or does it matter where? Well, I mean, at at some point with um, a lot of history in an area, you kind of know where to start. Sure. Um, and, and guiding, that's for sure what I fall back on is here's a place that's been productive in muzzleloader week, um, in the past, and we're going to go start there. Right. Um, but for, for a do it yourself guy, I would say that if you have five days to hunt, um, don't spend day one backpacking 10 miles back to try to be by yourself, spend day one, just kind of figuring out. Uh, looking through a spotter from yeah. a long ways off and finding elk and you can do it. You, you totally can do it in a day. Um, from a good vantage point, you, you can find elk in, in an over the counter unit. Um, go there. Right. Uh, then once you found them, then, then spend your, your day hiking. And yeah. yeah. So this is kind of an abstract, but I'm curious as two guys with as much experience as you have. Um, there's times where you're in the woods or even just driving and it starts to feel elky or it starts to feel like a yeah. second this is moose habitat is do you feel like there's any merit to that we, we've got <laughs> no. J- jimmy and i when we hunt together um in our personal time right yeah. whether it's whether it's turkey deer elk whatever um we have this joke about how your propensity to say like uh this looks like a great spot to kill a bull or or, or man this looks like a great spot to kill a turkey um it's patently false, man. The best place, <laughs> the best place to kill a bull is where he's standing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, I, guys get hung up on that for sure. Yeah. Um, man, this is an elky looking meadow. I'm going to sit it for seven days. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, if whatever, if it's torn up, if it stinks of elk, sure, maybe. But, um, if you just have a feeling in your gut, um, yeah, no, keep looking. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is interesting because it's also the thing that I've learned as um, coming from the East Coast and getting into elk and biology and ecology and all of that is uh, you could look at a, a desert hill. Uh, you know, it's got sage and oak brush and it is drier than dry red dirt. 
And you don't realize that at the top of that is an oasis, a plateau that's gorgeous, grasslands, and it's the uh, how dramatic the landscape, and dramatically the landscape changes out here is fascinating. Um, you know, I uh, used to work up in Aspen last year, and I would drive Independence Pass, and you see an elk above tree line, eleven to twelve thousand feet. But when I was hunting last year, day three, all the elk got pushed off the public. And when I was leaving the unit, I was driving down this dirt road and the whole herd came from the most nasty looking driest area I've ever seen. I was like, okay, I guess they live everywhere. Like, it's not like they're like, this feels elky to them. They're so so adaptable. They're so adaptable. They need water, they need food, they need cover. But what I recognize is they'll go for the third best quality food, water, and cover if they're being hunted. They're not going to be like, well, this is my favorite watering hole, but there's a guy with a gun right there. Right. Uh, so it's really interesting to think like how resilient and how adaptable they are. Like you said, they're born out there and they stay there all, all their lives versus us with our, you know, little meat bag, flesh skin, that <laughs> try to be as brave as these elk are. Uh, we do it for a week at a time, you know? Yeah. One, one of the things that I noticed a lot with our um, guided hunters that are first time elk hunters, they like, we'll glass up. Uh, an animal pointed out to him and like, whoa, that is not even close to what I was looking at. I thought that was, that, that didn't look like elk habitat to me. And they do get pressured into some hell holes um, that you're like, that looks like a mountain goat or sheep country should be, you know, it is fascinating. I'm curious as uh, you guys have been working here and running this business, what are some of the like highlights? I'm sure like hunter success is part of that, but what are some of the highlights and some of the lowlights of doing this? Um, I'm curious what the like ebbs and flows of the emotional constitution of an outfitter is <laughs> throughout the course of a season or not. Yeah, for me, um, camaraderie in general between me and the crew uh, and me and the hunters um, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. I love watching guys that the wilderness experience and what that does to a person's soul. Uh, it strips everybody of their, when you have dirt under your fingernails, um, and we're all pooping in a hole together. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the same time. <laughs> we're, we're all, we're all tired and we're all struggling. Uh, we're all in this together. Um, and, and then eventually, uh, finding some level of success, whatever that is. Um, that's just a beautiful thing, man. And that, and that's my high, that's my high point, the camaraderie and, and sharing just a I, kind of a, uh, an indescribable experience with other people yeah. uh, is, is, is my highlight. And I'd also imagine that living out here, being from here and guiding out here, uh, that's your social life too. It's yeah, guys for sure. That are coming in here for and telling sure. you about their lives and their stories, and that's kind of how you get to interact with the world. Too. For sure, I'm a hermit, and you wouldn't know it. Like, um, uh, I like to talk, uh, but <laughs> I don't have like a big network of people. Right. I don't have. Uh, I live in the middle of nowhere, and uh, and and so to have people that I have a ton in common with, uh, that that want to do the same stupid things that I want to do. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a family, right? Yeah, we um, have a lot of people meet them in the middle of the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I have, I have guys that have hunted four or five years, um, and uh, and they're they're friends. We send Christmas cards, yep. right? Absolutely, um, I love that. That's great, man. How about for you? Guys? Man, the like the the most memorable um, experiences are are the shittiest ones. 
right? So it's the, like when you're when it's negative ten or like you're riding back. You know, we just we just chased elk all day, and somehow we managed to get ten miles away from camp. And you're riding back for three hours in the dark, and it's snowing. Um, it sucks in the moment, but it's it it's so fun to like think about those. And like the very next day, as soon as you're dry, you're like, ah, oh, that was that was crazy. Yeah. What about the, the low lights? Is there some parts of the season or certain clients or wounded animals? Is there certain that thing that kind of bums you out? It's just tougher part to get through that kind of sticks out a little bit? Man, the, the low points for me um, is usually when, when the hunting gets really tough. And, and it's hard to keep spirits up. Um, as a guide, like, like one of the things you're always trying to do is you, you got to keep the spirits up with your hunter. Cause it, it takes one moment and, and the whole hunt does a 180, yeah. right? So that's, you know, you might've hunted three days and not seen a single elk. Uh, it just takes that one, but you need to keep that hunter motivated to, to go out and, you know, uh, let's not, you know, they might want to sleep in one more. It's like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta go out and do it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I uh, was just on a fishing trip in North Carolina, and the uh, guide there was uh, great at being stoked for every fish that came on the boat. And when you're spearfishing, it's pretty easy to be stoked because it's like an awesome thing to do. But he'll take out families with a little kid who's, you know, reeling in some tiny little black sea bass. And he's like, great job, man, that's awesome. And that's his job, right? Yeah. It might be his every day, but it's their one-time experience. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you recognizing that. Um, if, uh, just my curiosities, uh, if a client, I don't know how you guys communicate in the backcountry, whether it's in reaches or whatever, but if a client says you drop them at a drop camp, uh, and day two hits and shoots an animal, say archer, but wounds it or doesn't, can't track it very well. Do you guys have some sort of protocol in that situation in terms of like, Hey man, we got some dogs we can bring in here or we'll send you out a, a packer who's a great tracker and you know, I'm curious how you manage those experiences. Man, it's, it's yes and no, right? Cause we're, we're, we're on a tight schedule. We got stuff going on every single day. So to be able to send a guy up to, to help out on, on a track, I would love to. And if someone's available, yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll go up and, and, and help the best I can on the dog front. I don't even think it's legal to have dogs. Right? Yeah. But, um, you know, once they get an animal down, obviously we come up and, and pack it out for them. Um, you know, what tracking is probably one of the the skills that, that so many people have lost, including myself. Um, I was just in Africa uh, in the uh, end of May. And the guys over there, it is incredible how well they can track. Um, man, you might lose the track, but... If you just start gritting, so you know they'll contact us and like, you know maybe we'll we'll point them out like, hey, go check this piece of cover out and get on your on X right and start doing a track and and start gritting that that country and there's a good chance they're gonna they're gonna turn up that that animal. I've always said you need uh, you need two guys on any tracking job with two different personalities. Yeah. You need one guy who's on his hands and knees looking at every broken twig, and you need another guy that's just thinking out in the head where <laughs> where would I where would I bail off to? Yeah. Um, and uh, 
yeah, yeah. It's probably a 50-50 split on, on how you find them. Yeah, for sure. Sense. Just hearing you guys talk about this, especially uh, from like a guide's perspective, uh, being so far mostly a solo hunter, is it's really interesting the differences because one, uh, getting further back with people, with friends, is easier. You're, you're having a conversation when you're on the trail or you're picking each other up or loaning some water, making some food. And then same thing, when you're calling out, you have someone 50 yards behind you. When you're tracking, you have a guy 50 yards to your left or 50 yards to your right. When you're by yourself and you want to sleep in one morning or you're like, man, I've searched everywhere. It's like, well, have you or have you searched everywhere that you're like, have the energy for? You do, you <laughs> right. know, to be your own internal, uh, tell yourself not to be a bitch is, is easier said than done sometimes. Um, but you have to remember, like, man, you think about this all year long. For me, like, I think about September 2nd all year long. From September 3rd to August, September 1st, I think about September 2nd, yeah. at least until the season dates change. And just that idea of like, hey man, you're here. Uh, it, it's September 4th. You're going to sleep in today or are you going to do the thing that you said you were going to come here and do? And so it's really interesting, uh, that camaraderie aspect. I went on my first rifle hunt last year with some buddies. There's five of us back there. One of them shot a bull. It was one of the probably, there was probably 30 hunters back there and I think two or three bulls got taken out. So it was like pretty great success for the group. But also all of us felt as successful as the guy who shot it. Oh, yeah. It's always we shot now, yeah. not I shot it. And it's yeah. our memory. Our yeah. memory. Uh, so it's really interesting. It kind of makes me want to live on both sides of that equation of like, I want to do this myself. I want to feel that primal feeling of like, I can survive at least this one time. But I also want to share in these experiences, have that camaraderie, have those memories, and have somebody, oh, I saw it. Again, this spearfishing example, just because it's fresh in my head. We were at a place called Frying Pan Towers, 40 miles off the coast of North Carolina. And um, crystal clear waters, barracudas, sharks everywhere, and some good fish. And uh, towards the end of the day, my buddies were like, hey, there's a nice black sea bass. And they all four of them watched me drop down on it, get level with it, shoot the sea bass. And then unbeknownst to me, like six sharks came in uh, at that same time. So these three guys are all back to back poking the sharks over and put this fish on the boat. And it's like, man, that is teamwork. That is camaraderie. They saw the fish, I shot the fish, they kept us safe. And so it's just that same feeling of like, we did this shit. I love that. That's uh, awesome. I hunted by myself for probably a decade. Yeah. And, and Jimmy used to give me a lot of crap about it because um, part of why I hunted by myself was I didn't want to share my, my knowledge, my spots, uh, which is so lame. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I feel like, and, and we've talked about it a bunch, I feel like uh, to some degree you're more affected by yourself because you're able to operate on instinct you can think and react yeah. right you don't have to sit down and be like um well i don't know man what do you want to do um uh on the other hand though it's just a richer more fulfilling thing to share a hunt with somebody else we hunted together yeah. last year uh during archery we both killed bulls and uh had the most epic time and it'll be something like when we're old men, I'll be able to call Jimmy up and be like, uh, "Remember the Afghanistan deployment?" Yeah. <laughs> what what we what we tagged that. Right? Um, yeah, it, it's just a more fulfilling thing to share a hunt with somebody else, yeah. and I encourage anybody who is like, there's something to be said for the solo experience, and uh, and I think you build knowledge quicker by yourself. I think you build toughness quicker. Too. For sure. Yeah. For sure. But when you get to some stage of your of your hunting trajectory start sharing it with other people because it's 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 hands down 
Absolutely. richer experience. Off mic, we were talking about how uh, social media has become very prominent in hunting over the past few years, and there's these guys first back in the day with the Outdoor Channel or Outdoor TV, and now YouTube, you can have your own hunting shows, Instagram, everyone's trying to be uh, a personality out there. Um, but it's interesting what you said, like once you kind of get to a place where you're, whatever that place is, where you're comfortable, then share it with people. I realized that uh, coming out here and talking to guys like you and the other guys in CBA um, is like, it made me really retreat into sharing, not in a, I don't want other people to know this way, but in a like, I don't know shit kind of way. Yeah. It's like, I don't need to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, and be doing nothing. It's like, how about don't look at me, let me go try to accomplish yeah. something, and then I may tell you about it at yeah. some point yeah. in the future. Uh, it feels like a healthier relationship with the activity. Um, I have a buddy who said the same thing about fly fishing. It's like everyone wants to get spots or bite hormis or whatever the heck and whatever the thing is. And it's just like, man, that kind of ruins that pristine. I found this stream. I'm by myself. I'm listening to the Babylon Brook. And it's just this like uh, convening with nature versus using nature to get social media posts. Yeah, totally. Um, so you told me um, when we were up in the lodge that you guys have something like 600 hunter days. Um, that's a lot of logistics over eight, nine weeks of hunting. I'm curious, um, what percentage of that is a drop camp and what percentage of that is guided? And then how many guides do you have? And like, man, you guys must be just going nonstop come like the last week of August. Yeah, I'd, I'd say pro the majority of the business are drop camps, right? Because it, cause it takes a crew of two to take in five hunters, drop them off, go pick them up a week later. Um, Let me just pause you there yeah. with that. Crew of two, five hunters. Is that twelve horses, fifteen horses? How do you get everybody back there? All their stuff. Yeah. So you, each is going to have a horse. Uh, each wrangler taking them up the mountain is going to have a horse. So we're at seven, and then generally um, we allow each hunter to have one one pack animal. So um, that's twelve twelve total. Yeah never ridden a horse in my life so i'm like man it's a lot of animals especially for two guys to be coming out of the woods with 12 animals 10 miles it's like, man some shit can go wrong yeah and 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 uh, yeah yeah it does um but i think we really pride ourselves here at um lks that we we have like the best staff around and i truly do believe that like our best horsemen best guides um and when you have the best, you can mitigate a lot of stuff. You, you you can never prevent walking up on a moose on the trail and the animals spooking, but when you have good staff, you can you can mitigate a lot of issues. The full crew look like outfitters, horse guys. Uh, I don't know what the other jobs may be. With with the new um, Horn Fork guys, which um, we just signed uh, the paperwork on less than a week ago um we're at 43 horses and mules uh and then plus staff has their own um stock and then we we may end up renting um another you know 10 10 horses to get us through wow. some busy times staff when you when you know evan and i are the only full-time year-round mm -hmm. um but then our i call them full-time seasonal because you know for five months they're they're working 15 hour days um probably 12 people yeah. yeah yeah and there's a lot of uh um 
it's a pretty coordinated schedule and there's a lot of, there's, there's some guys that'll come in and help for two weeks and, and then be gone. Um, so there's some dancing around, but yeah, 12s probably. Yeah. I bet there's at the end of the season, there's, there's been 12, 12 employees. So when uh, we were talking earlier, you said like 90% of your business is out of state more or less and like 10%, maybe 5% in state. I'm curious how that breaks down. Is that same thing with guided versus drop camps, same ratios? Yeah, that would be, I don't, I think Don was the only guy I guided from that was a resident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't guided a Colorado resident. Uh, it's yeah, I'd say I'd say ten percent of our business throughout the outfit, uh, drop camp and guided is, is residents. Do you notice any difference between residents and non residents other than what they're paying for tags in terms of their attitudes, their experience, their abilities? Or is it can it not be that generic? Well the residents, um there's a higher likelihood that they've hunted elk before. Um and like I, I think of a, a group that's based out of Carbondale. Um, they used to come hunt on their own. Now they they sold all their stock and they come with us. And so they live at you know seven thousand feet, uh, and they're a lot better acclimated than the guy that's coming from Corpus Christi. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, a lot of the sheep and goat hunters are residents, sure. and that's just due to tag allocation. Yeah. Um, do you guys do any moose guiding? Jim, yeah yeah uh we do so they just um last year was the first year that they put uh moose tags in in our unit so and the the moose unit is 25 26 231 um and uh i'm kind of hesitant to say it but yeah yeah i drew i drew i drew the moose tag for the unit this year yeah congrats man that's huge that's uh, so we're going to pivot for a second. Uh, that's gotta be so daunting. Like you have this whole business to run. Yeah. 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 No, I know. It's, it's like, it's kind of stressful, but the, the cool thing is like we, you know, we have all these drop camp hunters out there. We're out there guiding. So I should come, come moose season. I should have like a pretty good handle on, yeah, I've uh, got a pretty good network. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, to, 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 to be the uh, second bull moose hunter in unit you know, 25. Man, that's um, so interesting because yeah. moose are more vocal than it seems like deer and elk are for the most part in terms of like it seems like deer and elk kind of migrate a bit more than moose migrate to live where they live. I might be wrong. Man, they they move around a lot. Um, but they, they, they might not have these crazy migrations, right, that like some of the elk and, and deer have. Um, they might be wintering up at 9,000 feet. That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I uh, do a ski share out in Brackenridge, and there's these four bull moose just like right on the property. And man, I see them a couple times a year, but it's crazy to be like, man, you guys are here, and it's fucking February. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we have like uh, such varied vegetation types in the flat tops. That it's like they they could be they could be at eleven thousand feet out in the wide open in the small willows, or or they could be right down here at eight thousand living in the timber. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah, they're 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 just kind of vastly dispersed. Yeah, the landscape. There's like the elk thing. There's there's moose habitat everywhere in here. What happens when you come across a moose on a horse? They're just not used to seeing them. Uh, 
Well, no, it's it, usually the moose doesn't care. They're just looking at you. Uh, and I've also kind of messed with them, been calling from horseback. Yeah, yeah, they come in. Like, we've already tied up, and they come up, and, like, you hear the horses nickering, going crazy. You're like, what, what's going on? And it's a moose coming up, checking them out. The horses are kind of spooked of them. Yeah, so, like, moose, bears really aren't as bad as you would think, running across them on the trail. The worst is probably, like, a, if there's a public guy with llamas. They hate. They hate llamas. Yeah, horses and mules. Hey, this, to, to all you public hunters out there, the, the worst thing to run into on the trail is a guy that tries to hide. Yeah. He's like, here come horses, so I'm going to get behind this bush. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm a, Just, just kind of walk up. And yeah, walk and, talking, yeah. Yeah, like if I see someone up ahead of us or whatever, I'll shout up, ask them to step off the trail just a little bit, but constantly be talking to us. So those, those mules know right where that, that sound's coming from. Um, if you hide in a bush and I don't see you, those horses are going to see you and they're going to, yeah, it's going to get freaked. Um, so with that, I'm curious, what's the like worst situation you've been in, in terms of like, with horses, trying to, you know, what's the most chaos you've gotten yourselves into? <laughs> uh, one time, I, it, was, it was snowing. We were far from camp, uh, and I was going to try to shortcut us back, and I was, like, not letting the horse do his thing. Next thing I knew, like, I'm, like, on a cliff going down, uh, yelling at the hunter, stay up there, but their horse wants to follow my horse, uh, like, jumping off, trying to get back up. That, that was kind of, Harry, you should just... I should just let the horse do his thing. He knew where he was going. In in eight years of guiding here, ten ten years of total outfitting experience, I can't recall like a traumatic. No. Uh, like we've never had a traumatic injury, right? Like yeah. a guy a guy getting bucked off and splitting his head or anything like that. Um, which knock on wood, right? Because um, anything could go wrong at any moment. But um, yeah, no, I, and it goes back to the staff thing. We're, yeah, we're all. Um, this is our life. Yeah. Uh, and, it, um, yeah, at all costs, we avoid those sure. chaotic situations. I've heard some people say that, um, mules, uh, maybe donkeys too, but mules have more of a self-preservation in them than horses do in terms of like, For sure. a mule yeah. will not put itself in a bad situation where yep. a horse may, uh, get into a situation that's going to be tough to get out. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of what. In my opinion, you talk to some of the other staff, they love their mules and that. I think Evan and I are definitely more horse guys because they're like, yeah, yeah. My my good horse, I could ask him to walk off a 2,000 foot cliff and he'd do it for me. (laughs) But but, uh, the mule advocates will tell you that a mule is going to keep you safe because he's going to keep himself safe. Yeah. Um, so they, they have their pros and cons. With the horses in this area, are you guys ever limited in terms of feed and water for them? Like, man, we'd love to go over there, but it's just too difficult logistically with the animals. Yeah. If elk can live there, so can horses. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, for the most part, our, our guided stuff um, in a wilderness camp, we're, we're feeding the horses processed feeds. We're having to pack in alfalfa cubes and uh, grain. Interesting. Um, uh, so it isn't, no, it's, it's by no means. And there's water everywhere. Yeah. And we, you know, you go a half mile on the trail, you're going to cross water at some point. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, we're coming up on time here, but I want to talk to you guys about some more stuff and that's cool. Yeah. 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 Um, I did that one. Um, uh, it's funny edited out, yeah. but, uh, I, I feel like 
or at least for me, I've gotten way more comfortable talking here towards the end of the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. You probably should get the good stuff in. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, is there, I'm curious what the like uh, similarities and differences are in terms of whether it's a drop camp or guided, maybe we'll stay with guided, uh, with your, with, if, when you're with rifle hunters versus archery hunters. Obviously, there's a distance factor there, but I'm curious if there's a bigger change in mentality or approach. Man, the expectations thing, yeah. again, uh, archers are used to having their ass kicked. <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? It's why they do it. Yeah. Uh, because they enjoy the challenge of getting close yeah. um, and, and shooting a primitive weapon. Uh, and so I... I and I don't, I don't mean to throw rifle hunters under the bus at all, but uh, I, I feel like archers are just a little grittier. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, for, for the most part. Yeah, and, and they tend to be a little bit younger, a little better in shape. They know they're going to have to do a little more walking. Yeah. Have you guys seen, uh, and so uh, in the past, and I'm part of the, I'm, I'm literally part of it. Joe Rogan uh, basically has like popularized hunting to a crazy. Uh-huh. I moved to Colorado because he like talked about Colorado. So I'm the like epitome of a guy who got into this through podcasting and all that stuff. Have you guys noticed a difference in your business in the past six years? Absolutely. How popular this stuff has become? Guys wanting to come out and try this stuff. Yeah, there's been a huge spike in. Um new hunters, right? That like, kind of like yourself got into hunting later in life because of Joe Rogan, Steve Rinella, w- whatever the case might be. Um, and even, even older gentlemen, um, like Cameron, um, got into it, you know, at age 50. Uh, and a lot of it I think is, you know, the, this movement, like you're eating like this really awesome organic meat, you know, right where it's coming from. So I think that's a big, that's a big plus. Yeah. So with that, have you seen um, a difference in um, experience level in terms of like, I don't know. I think that you can hunt whitetail out of a tree stand uh, with a bow with like, depending on how much you care, let's say three months of like going from nothing to a hundred, I'd say 50 pound bow, 55 pound bow. If you're shooting two, three days a week, three months, I trust you in a tree stand taking a shot at an animal. Very different being in the backcountry. Very different judging shot angles. Very different shooting at an 800-pound animal versus a 100-pound animal. I'm curious if you guys have seen, with that uptick in interest, a decrease in experience in terms of, I'm going to go with these guys who will drop me at a drop camp or a guy because I don't have the experience that, you know, somebody who found this. For sure. For sure. Uh, But uh, I think uh, a lot of the guys that we guide, that that's the trajectory, right? They they've learned about through hunting, through podcasts, through through media, um, and then um, probably went and tried to hunt. They, they don't have a they don't have a buddy. They don't have a dad that hunts. Um, and a guided hunt is and it is hands down. It's it's the best thing you can do to suddenly have a partner on the mountain that knows his stuff and is going to help you get there. Um, and uh, yeah, we've had. Um, uh, not name names, but we, we, yeah, we've had, we've had several hunters that, um, have gone from like first time hunter to suddenly they've killed a buck and then they kill a bull and then they kill a bear and, um, all, all through us. But, but now they're capable of going out there and doing it themselves. Yeah, like for, for a new hunter, if you have the financial means, if you can go do a guided hunt and it doesn't even have to be where you plan on hunting every right. year. Like if, if we got a guy, 
I don't want to see you back in, in where we shot shot an animal. But you, you'll learn so much on a guided hunt that you can take and you can go to anywhere in Colorado. How many over-the-counter units? 56. Oh, a ton. Uh, it's the, the stuff you learn here on a flat tops hunt applies to any of those. Um, That's huge. So with that, I'm curious. I'm sure there's some people listening like, man, I've never gone on a guided hunt or I'd like to do it. Um, and let's put this at like a, you know, a year from now as an example. What do you, if you, if you could break it down into 12 months out, six months out, maybe three months out and like a month out, is there any sort of mentality or advice that you give people who's saying, all right, let me go from considering a hunt to booking the hunt, to getting prepared for the hunt, to actually showing up. And that includes e-scouting, physical fitness, uh, weapon preparation. I'm curious if you guys give any sort of general Here's how you should hone in on the day. Well, yeah. So if you're going to go with an outfitter, I would tell guys, pick your outfitter instead of the unit first and foremost. Make sure you're going with someone reputable. Um, and then as soon as you are thinking about booking that hunt, start start training. Um, and, and especially on the physical fitness end. And then obviously shooting your bow and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that, like I, I tell a lot of guys, um, shoot your bow as if like you were going out on a week long hunt. If you shoot, if you shoot lights out every single day, um, awesome. But you're not going to on a week long hunt. You're not going to have that that option. Most likely, if you're in a wilderness, it, yeah, go go a few days without shooting a bow. Or like I, I read this article that was pretty cool. Um, it was like a one arrow a day for a week right and start at what what you think your max range is or close to it so maybe it's 40 yards shoot one arrow if you hit a pie plate or whatever you think is a good shot step it back 10 yards the next day and keep going and and you can find your you know your true range because i know my first shot um usually sucks <laughs> it is interesting I, I i've done some of that too is like if i'm going to a range it doesn't matter if i was there yesterday or a month ago just that idea of this is your first shot treat it like your first shot maybe be on one knee at 50 yeah. yards yeah. to see what happens you know like just kind of put yourself in that what if this is happening or for me um sometimes just with archery i'll play a little game in my head where i'm like say i'm the only one at a range i'm like turned around and I don't even have an arrow knocked. It's like, pretend from this moment that uh, animal just got into your peripheral vision. How do you move? How do you pull the arrow from the string? What would you do if there was a broadhead on this arrow? Like, you're not going to nick your string or nick your hand while you're, while you're knocking it. Are you going to do your shot sequence? Are you going to turn? Are you going to pretend to wait for a moment where the head drops so you can do a smooth pullback? Things of that nature. And it seems so silly, but it's like, you get pretty good at hitting the 12 ring on a rubber target that hasn't moved from 30 yards and has been in your backyard all summer. But can you get good at maybe surprising yourself into taking a shot or saying, hey, can I take a shot in seven seconds? Can I knock an arrow and take a shot? Because I've noticed just through watching guys that like that opportunity comes and goes in an instant. And whether you're sitting in a tree stand or you're in the back country, a quick example from last year, I... Uh, Hunting all morning, saw a bunch of animals, uh, just basically bumping stuff and scaring stuff just through not being ready and not having a good approach to it. Um, so I decided, let me drop down this valley and climb up this drainage and look back at what I was just hunting and spooking and doing all this stuff. I do that. It's exhausting. I, I get down to the 
river bottom, I, I splash my face, I climb up, take my shoes off, take my shirt off, bow's laid out, I, it's looking like a yard sale out there, <laughs> and I see the elk that I was chasing, so I start cow calling, and unbeknownst to me, a legal spike comes right up, 15 yards, I don't even have shoes on, I like crawl over to my bow, <laughs> I, put the, I try to knock an arrow, I stand up, and as I go to pull back, the arrow falls off the mm, Yeah. <laughs> it's just that idea of like, always be ready, but always be ready is taxing. It is it's hard to practice nervous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't care how how many elk you've been in archery range of, you feel some you feel some heart thumps, right? Uh, I don't yeah. I don't think anybody can just one hundred percent keep their cool and they're yeah. lying if they say Yeah, that. and if, if they if they can't if they actually can, they probably should stop hunting. <laughs> yeah, they should quit. They should quit. Uh, uh, it'd be it'd be awesome to figure out a way to, to practice that. Something I notice is uh, if I shoot my bow in front of other people, I feel a little bit of that nervousness. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's the closest that's the closest similarity I can get. I love that. Yeah. Um, we'll wrap up here with two things. One, I'm going to ask you a question, then I want you to just tell everybody everything about the outfit, where to get booked, and information, and all that stuff. Before I do that, I'm curious if each of you, if you could boil down success to like one thought or one phrase or one thing, like what. Um, makes a successful hunter i know that's a hard question to just ask and be sprung on you but i'm curious if to all the experiences and the guiding and your personal experiences regardless of weapon regardless of animal what is like a, a key to becoming a successful hunter um i don't know if either of you have a thought yeah it's uh enjoy enjoy the enjoy the hunt whether it's whether you're punching a tag or not uh yeah for sure and that's probably a little cliche, but you, you like you you need to enjoy the whole the whole time, the whole experience. And I think that's a big part of life is like can you point yourself towards gratitude? Can you find a way to um, see the silver lining in this stuff and, and really lean into that? Whether it's for me, uh, I could define success as I'm going to come out of the woods with a bull by myself next season. It's like, man, that is the goal, but that's not success. That's the goal. Success for me is, did I learn a little bit more than I learned last time? Did I stay a little bit longer? Did I have a little bit more fun? Um, did I extract something useful from Yeah, And I think it's even just like, if you spend a week out in the woods, you're going to see something pretty epic. It might not, you might not have even seen an elk your whole week. Yeah. But you probably saw something cool, yeah, right? Yeah, you, you, maybe you saw a moose or, you I, you know, I don't know, maybe you saw a rare bird. Yeah, or even just inside yourself realizing, like, that time in the woods, especially if you're diligent about, like, let me not be on myself and let me not be in podcasts or audiobooks. Let me just be out here having that experience is that a mental freedom, a mental capacity that kind of washes over you in a way of, like, oh, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is why I'm an earthling in this place. Um, it can get pretty meta for me when I'm out there of like, man, it is wild that like I drove from a big city in a nice car and I have a GPS or whatever. And I'm like out here. One thing that freaked me out last year is like I was uh, on my hands and knees going down this game trail and it just hit me. I was like, this thing's probably been here for thousands of years. Like literally animals have probably been walking up and down this thing for thousands of years. And I'm just another version of that. Grain of sand, man. We're all just grains of sand. How about you? Uh, I would, man, Jimmy. Yeah, I had to jump in there. <laughs> got all intellectual. Um, I would, I would talk more about a punch and tags. Yeah. And and in punch and tags, I think perseverance is the thing that um, 
people need to work on. The guys that are able to uh, stay tough through anything, uh, the guys that don't quit for any reason, the, the guys that over and over and over again are willing to make themselves look like a fool, um, those are the guys that just dial in. Yeah. Um, just stick to your guns. You know what I mean? I uh, like prevail. <laughs> That's huge. Guys, I appreciate your time so much. This has been a ton of fun. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours, but I know you got some stuff coming up the rest of your day. How about you uh, let us know how people can find you, find the outfit, what opportunities you have. You said you just guys acquired some more uh, permits or another outfit? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, both. Um, yeah, so you can you can contact us. Um, you can find us at ftguides.com or flattopswildernessguides.com. Um, the phone number's on there. Um, you can email us at web at ftguides.com. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at flattopswildernessguides. Um, and uh, the, the website's pretty informational. So if you're thinking about doing a hunt, breeze through it, and it's going to answer a lot of, lot of questions. Too late to book anything for the upcoming season? Uh, no. So we have um, a couple of archery drop camps um, open, and then we have uh, we had a group of uh, guided archery cancel. So we have uh, the tenth to the sixteenth uh, guided hunts available, which also is that muzzleloader time frame, which might be the best week of September yeah. in my mind. It, it is a good one. Yeah. Um, and then if you wanted to point yourselves, people towards your personal pages, if you want to, you don't have to, you're more than welcome to. Yeah. 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 Evan doesn't have one. Uh, I have one, but I'm not out there for self-promotion. So. Well, I really appreciate it. Is there anything you guys want to say before we sign off or got all the information we got? Man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Um, for, for all the listeners, man, uh, hunting season's coming up quick. Get, get dialed in. That's for sure. Appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Everybody, this is Jake for Jimmy and Evan signing off. Thanks so much.